This episode of The First Feature is sponsored by Musicbed. Just like scouting, filming, and editing, having great music should be an asset to your film, not a roadblock. Musicbed is dedicated to making that a reality. That's why they've completely rebuilt their platform of over 650 world-class artists and composers with brand new features, workflows, and checkout process. Want to exclude holiday songs from your search in July? Go for it. Need a folk song that has a guitar but no banjos at 120 beats per minute? No problem. With advanced search features like include, exclude, beats per minute, key, song build, and more, finding the perfect song has never been easier or faster. Get 20% off your next on-site license with coupon code FIRSTFEATURE20. Learn more at musicbed.com new. Again, that's coupon code FIRSTFEATURE20. Welcome to The First Feature, a No Film School podcast. My name is Ryan Koo. I'm the founder of No Film School, and my first feature is titled Amateur. Amateur is out there right now on Netflix worldwide. Every episode of this podcast covers a different stage of filmmaking, from screenwriting to prep to production to release. If you have any questions about your own feature, you can email them to firstfeature at nofilmschool.com or find me on Twitter at Ryan B. Koo. Episode 5, Casting and Prep. Once again, I'm here with Liz Nord from No Film School. Hi, y'all. We just did the last episode, which there's sort of a, a gray area between when that one be- ends and this one begins because we were doing financing and some of the financing may be cast dependent on a lot of movies. So we, we sort of we sort of drew the line in the sand and said, once we really get into casting, we'll just start a new episode. Well, before we even get into the past of the film, now, as we pointed out last week, it's out there in the world. It's on Netflix. Anyone can watch Amateur. Um, it was released a couple weeks ago at this point. So what's happened in the real world uh, with Amateur since we last spoke? It's been amazing. I mean, Netflix for a lot of people is how they watch everything. And I didn't envision this movie for, I think, maybe the more independent film-specific audience. I wanted to make it for the world at large and for a specific audience and for basketball fans. And those people have really, really responded to it passionately on Twitter. And some of the things that people have said have been just amazing because you can just go search and they don't know who I am. But if you go search the film and they're saying, this is my favorite movie, this should be a series, where's the sequel? Um, You know, that has been really inspiring. And also just to be on Netflix where it doesn't matter the size of your film, the platform and the artwork and the algorithms and everything are going to put your movie in front of people that are going to like it. The audience basically has no idea that your movie's any different from some mainstream Hollywood movie that would also be streaming on Netflix. Exactly. It's all, it's all you know, content is surfaced in a meritocratic way for people that are, gonna like it and that's a really really if you really think about it that's a game changer for indies who are usually uh theatrically fighting for a smaller theater and a shorter run and not as much of a you know with with fewer seats once you get to the digital realm and the social realm and you're able to you don't have to truck a certain number of prints like you would have in the old days for film and, and have a lot of the limitations placed along on an indie. Uh, on Netflix, your movie is just like any other movie. And it's like right out to the people. Like 
you know, you may not, you, Ryan, as the filmmaker, may not have that kind of gratification that some filmmakers get from lots of live screenings and lots of Q&As, but you get the gratification of, like, the world recognizing your film right now. Absolutely. And on, a, on, a, on the largest platform possible, I mean, we're talking 120 million subscribers in and 190 growing. countries. Yeah. It translated to 27 languages. I mean, it's really, it's really crazy for this to be a first feature, and that's uh, been incredibly gratifying. Are they doing overdubs just out of curiosity or, or subtitles? How does it work? Uh, yeah, I'd have to go on Netflix in different languages to see. I, I, we're definitely translated into some languages, and then we're subtitled in others. How fun. I, yeah, I, I don't know all of the details of that, but um, you know, we'll cover some more of that in when we get to, to further episodes to the release part of this this podcast. Okay, well, we've got some steps till we get there. So now jumping into the <laughs> Wayback Machine, as Ryan said, last week we talked about kind of financing and how do you get your producers on board and how do you get this thing off the ground? And we kind of left off once Netflix said yes and Ryan was, you know, Ryan and his team were given the financing for the film. And one of the early and major, major, you know, steps, of course, is casting but I guess before we even get into the details of your casting, how is that related to financing? Because we did talk a little bit about the old model where you absolutely had to have a star in place before anyone was going to say yes to you. What's How did it go for you? What's kind of the model now? I think with every movie, it's a bit of a chicken and the egg issue where you can get this financing if you have that cast. But it's also it's harder to approach cast if your movie isn't financed because obviously there's a million movies out there looking for financing. And if you're an experienced, recognizable actor, everyone would love to have you in their movie. So how do they as actors filter out the offers that are real and the opportunities that are going to come to fruition versus just taking meetings and reading scripts? And, and so you you really want your team to be part of that vetting process for your own project. And if your producers have reputations of getting projects made, if you have financing, if you have distribution, if you have a production company, it, you know whatever it may be on board, heck, you could have a really great DP that wants to work with you. There are all sorts of things that go into being able to approach recognizable actors and, and to be able to attach cast. And quite frankly, as we talked about on episode two, if you have a short that is a showcase for performance, then that also really helps because if you are an actor and a project is coming your way, you may want to sit down and read a 90-page script, but you may even more want to sit down and watch a nine-minute short. That's the easy. That's an right. easier way into, okay, what is this project? What is it about? What is this director working with what are they saying is this real what level are they telling a story at so the short uh can also help with casting the feature so i know you already said that it's sort of different for every film but is there like a right time to start casting yes i would say as early as possible except i guess what a producer would probably say is you don't want to attach somebody in a role if it's limiting the ceiling of your movie. Like if you're trying to make a movie and you attach your friend in a role, but then it turned out that you could get somebody who's more recognizable that can 
get you this amount of financing and you can make your movie on a bigger scale. I mean, there are certain things that you could take off the table. I think just in terms of if you're looking to make a movie with recognizable actors that are experienced and bring something to the table in terms of how you're able to get the movie financed, then there are the normal channels you can go through. Every actor has an agent, essentially, and you can go on IMDb Pro and find out who that agent is. And that's you can start that whenever, but you do want to have built a coalition around your film that gives it credibility with all of those materials, like a pitch package and the script, and maybe a short or at least a lookbook. Producers who have resumes that are attached to the project, and then you can go out and approach their representatives. So then, yeah, there like there are ways to do it, but um, how did you do it? And I I want to start with your lead because you and John in I think episode two talked a lot about screenwriting and how one thing that's unique about your screenplay was that it's so reliant on your young male lead. So how did you find uh, Tehran? So we found Michael Rainey Jr., our lead. Uh, he We found him because he's an actor. And I actually didn't expect that to be the process. In writing this movie, I thought that it was going to be a discovery process. It was going to be a huge search and that we would try to find somebody who whose background was in basketball, but that we could work with as an actor. As it turned out, Michael Rainey Jr. had been in my producer, Jason Berman's film, Love, which was at Sundance in 2011, maybe. He, he was 11 years old at the time, and he starred opposite uh, the rapper and actor Common. So someone had seen that movie at Sundance, and I was already working on this film at the time. And they said, you've got to check out this kid, Michael Rainey Jr., and I said, this kid's 11 years old. He's four foot eight. You know, like, no, this is a basketball movie. But then it turned out that I was just going to be doing screenwriting for long enough. <laughs> the kid was going to grow. He was going to grow a lot. <laughs> and it turned out that Michael was an AAU point guard. Like, he was playing basketball in some of the circles that, that this movie was about. And he had grown. And he'd done Orange is the New Black and The Butler and the TV show Power and... So he'd been working as an actor and was a legitimate teenager. I mean, that was always my my goal with this film was we're not making the movie where the kids are quite a bit older than they're supposed to be. You know, this movie's about a 14-year-old and Michael was 15 when we shot it. It's not that that comes with a lot of sacrifices that we'll talk about during production in terms of your hours and other restrictions. But there's no substitute for the real youth of somebody's demeanor and their face and their innocence and everything. And the movie needed that. So we did audition other kids. You know, we did self-tapings and we had put this call out and um, I had attached a casting director, which we can talk about in a second. But Michael came to us from the world of acting. And so we did a read with my casting directors, Jessica Kelly and Kate Geller, in uh, Chinatown in their office. And then... We went out to the Christie Street basketball courts, and I said, okay, now this is audition part two. One is, can you act? Are you right for this character? What qualities do you bring to it? And then two is, can you hoop? Can you play basketball? We're not, this is, the movie's goal is to have it be real. There's no trick shots. We're not dropping a ball in the hoop from a ladder off screen. Every shot that is made in the movie is made for real. So you've really got to be able to play. You've really got to be able to be convincing handling the ball, 
doing all sorts of different things. So well, and play really well because for folks who haven't seen the film yet, this is a kid who you know part of his story is that he is is only in eighth grade when the film takes place and he gets recruited to a sort of uh, high stakes college prep school. So not only did the kid have to be able to play, he had to be able to play well enough that we would believe as an audience that like hot recruiters would be after him. Exactly. And there's there's always sort of a, a push-pull between who you're casting and what the role is. Like, if we were casting a taller kid, then I would have made it a forward on a basketball team. Michael was a point guard, so I, I wrote the movie for it to be a point guard, and therefore the strengths are dribbling and passing and a lot of the, in his court vision and these types of things. But we went out there to the court, and we played, and I guess we didn't really play. Like, there was no point for me to, you know, I don't need to test his defense. There's not a lot of defense in the movie, but that's because that wouldn't be particularly <laughs> interesting to watch, even though I like defense a lot. So basically, we went out, and, you know, I put Michael through some paces, and saw what his range was, saw what his strengths as a, as a ball handler were. And then not only was he a good basketball player, but he was good enough that then I could put him with a basketball trainer and work on specific things that I wanted for the movie, as opposed to trying to teach somebody from scratch mm. to play a sport, which is really where you could potentially get into a downfall trying to make a sports movie. If, if you cast an actor and they don't know how to do it, and then you have a certain number of weeks for them to go from zero to 100, in this case... With Michael, it was just making certain tweaks at the game to get him to, to the next level. And the fact that I'd auditioned him in basketball meant I knew what his strengths were so I could write those into the movie. So Michael was the first one that we cast. And I want to hear about your other leads as well, but you mentioned casting directors. Like I, I would imagine that a lot of, of new filmmakers are looking for ways to shave down their budget, and then an easy place to look would be to say, oh, you know, I don't really need a casting director. I can find the people myself. So I guess the question is, what do you, what value do you see in casting directors? How important is it to have that person in your corner? I think they're incredibly important. I mean, I did my web series, The West Side, without a casting director. We had a casting director for the short, Amateur. And it's not just, yes, you can, you can go out there on your own and cast your movie, especially if you know actors, if you have friends. Um, there are some websites that we use on the West Side, Backstage, actors access there are many that you can post sides to in a project and have people audition and you can do it yourself but if you're trying to find actors with experience that have worked in the industry that have done stage or tv or whatever it is a casting director is not just so much of what they do is their relationships the fact that they're auditioning people for other films all the time so they know who's nailing these auditions. And maybe even if those people didn't get the role, they know who to call in for your role. There are people in mind that they have just when they read your script. Oh, I, I can call on this guy, I can call on that guy, so on and so forth. And they also have, if they've done features in TV, then they already have all the relationships and they can reach out to agents and people will take their call because there's somebody who is casting bigger TV shows and, and features and, and all of these things, whereas those people wouldn't take your call. So it's not just a matter of uh, finding the actors or, or even if they're bringing in sort of more like street casting and real people casting. Like they can help with the workload of that and putting casting calls out there and then accepting a lot of videos from people who've never acted before. But in the industry, their relationships are so incredibly important for you to be able to find people that 
can, again, it's sort of a chicken and the egg thing, but that can help you get the financing and help you get your movie to a certain level. I imagine that a lot of indies, even if they're not, um, you know, sole character based, they have they're not huge ensembles either, just for practical reasons. And in your case, aside from Michael or whose character is Tehran, you know, there were like three other main adult characters, his mom, his dad and his coach. So did you use your casting directors to find them, too? Or how did that work? Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes also your producers can be helpful. You know, they can have relationships with agencies. They can they can help push for somebody to read a script. Um, I mean, I think everybody on the movie, there is a slightly different process. For me, I pride myself on performances and judging performances and working with actors to get great performances. So I was very particular about who I believed would be right for this world. And I think as a director, so much of your film is your casting and casting it right. And so much of that is saying no, because you can't just say yes to the biggest name because mm. you might not believe them in that role. And your instincts and what you believe as a director are the thing that you need to hold on to throughout this entire process so that all of the different departments and all of the different people are making your movie and your vision and that it's believable in the end. So it can be really tempting to, if your movie gets some momentum behind it and you go to an agency, what they might do is they give you a folder of photos of all these big name actors at that agency. And say, we, you know, because they want to get their clients to work. If your movie's going, they say, oh, you can cast this person in that role and this person in that role. And all, you know, they want their clients in all of the roles. Right. But if you don't believe that person, as the father of the kid, as the coach, as the mother, then it doesn't matter that they're a star. You know, your film could be worse off for it. So you really have to weigh those two things of, of who's at the right level as an actor that helps you get this movie made. And, you know, are they a great performer? And then also just are they right for this role? Other than instinct, was there anything that you could you know, say to our listeners about what they might want to be specifically kind of looking for in these castings to know what's going to be right. Sure. I mean, I think you can do your research. For example, with Josh Charles, I had always been a fan of his work. And he plays the coach. He plays the, the coach. Mm -hmm. I'd always been a fan of him as an actor. And I also believed him as a coach. But I also knew that he had done a TV show for years. He'd been on The Good Wife. And, you know, part of the magic of acting is playing different roles. And so actors who do the same role on a TV show for years often look for something different eventually. And Josh had a very publicized exit. You know, people were crying their eyes out because his character was so beloved on, on, on The Good Wife. And um, but he did hand raised, by the way. Yeah. I, mean, I loved him on The Good Wife. Oh, and the way they handled that was uh, I thought it was amazing. The, they handled it so emotionally and unexpectedly. Um, but so, you know, Josh wanted to do interesting indies. I mean, he this isn't personal knowledge. You know, that's that's something that he, he talked about when he was leaving the show. So if you can do a little bit of research and find out what actors out there are looking for, then maybe it makes it a good fit in terms of the timing, in terms of what they're looking to do. Because when you, as a first-time writer director 
are approaching an actor, you've got an uphill battle. You know, it's your budget's not large. You've never made a movie before. You're not proven. And you might not be filming in New York or L.A. in their hometown. You know, it's not the sort of thing where the creature comforts are going to be great. You're going to have the most amazing trailer or uh, craft services or anything. So you've you've really got to make an impression and find the right people uh, f- to motivate them to want to be in this in this first time film. What about reaching out to multiple actors at the same time? Like, say you knew you wanted Josh and maybe you were already talking to him, but he wasn't sure. And then you're on a timeline. Can you start talking to other actors for the same role at the same time? Yeah, this is a really uh, difficult part of the industry because for actors who are in supporting roles or for actors who don't have a lot of experience or if your movie's at a micro-budget level and it's not going to have recognizable faces in it, often that process is auditioning. And of course, you can audition as many people as you want. But on the other side of the industry, when you're sending what are called offers, meaning we really like this person, we think they'd be great in this film. There's not going to be an audition. You know, they've they've been in so many things. They don't have to prove themselves. They don't have to read. It's we want you in this movie. You can only do that with one actor at a time. And, of course, actors are acting. They're working. They're in something somewhere. You don't, you know, they might be on vacation. So when scripts, when you're sending a script out, you don't necessarily know, like, when can this person read it? And you can't have offers out to multiple people for the same role at the same time. You know, it helps when you have momentum behind your film and it helps when you have shooting dates because if somebody's just not available because they're in the Avengers 9, you know, then you can move on. Or you can say, we really want this person in this movie and we delay the entire shoot. But either way, if you have dates then you can at least sort of get through the initial hurdles of, is it even possible for this person to be in the movie? Wow, that must be a really intense sort of period of waiting. And now in your film, you have these kind of like four mains, but then there's like a pretty robust kind of supporting cast. And in, in the case of Amateur, like it's kind of an eclectic bunch, like Tehran's character has these teammates and each one of them has like a really distinct kind of background. They're not, quote unquote, generic basketball players. And that's sort of like part of your story. So how did you find and how would one find that sort of like wider supporting cast same way or is there a different process? Yeah. Uh, before we get to the supporting cast, I actually do want to say, since we talked about Josh, mm. I also want to talk about Sharon Leal and Brian White as the mother and the father, respectively, which, again, comes down to the same kind of research that I was talking about. Again, the odds are not in your favor as a first-time indie because working actors can go make more money somewhere else. And why take a chance on a first-time director if you have opportunities in more established uh, projects? And so with Sharon, Sharon's a sports fan, and I've been a fan of her in plenty of things. Uh, yeah, she was one of those faces, by the way, where I was like, oh, her. How did he get her? Oh, yeah, she's, she's been in a ton of things. Yeah. Um, but is also, she also loves basketball, and that helps, you know, to have a passion for the material. And Brian is the son of an NBA Hall of Famer, JoJo White, the Boston oh. Celtics legend. So he grew up around this. 
and he had been a football player. He played in uh, NFL, had a league in Europe. He played there. He was on the cusp himself as an athlete before he became an actor. And so obviously there's a lot of touch points for him there as well. So if you can find out anything about your actors and what their passions are, and uh, that can help you, um, you know, that can help you to at least try to try to tweak some of the odds a little bit in your favor. And by the way, are you meeting with these folks, like the big names? Are you meeting with them directly? Is it your producer? Like when you're really trying to convince them to come on board, who's there? Yeah, it's definitely you. And your personality and your charisma and your presence and your confidence, these are all things that you are being judged on because they've been there before and you haven't. And production can be incredibly difficult and disagreements can happen. And are you the kind of person that's going to crack under pressure? How, how do you handle adversity? And so the meeting is a big part of it because sometimes even before they've read the script, they want to know who you are. Can they take you seriously? Is this, is this real? And I think for you as a writer or director, you need to understand what your strengths are. I think there are some who maybe going and taking an in-person meeting is really encouraging to somebody for them to want to read the script. Others, maybe your script is really your strength. And maybe in person, you're a little bit more worried about your lack of experience. So maybe, maybe you want your people to push for them to read before a meeting so that they really fall in love with the material first and they don't discount somebody who's young or not what they expected or anything like that. So um, the meeting is a big part of it, but you should maybe think about when and how you approach those meetings. It's funny because in the last episode, we talked a lot about pitching more from the financial perspective. And you talked about these 80 times that you pitched the film to potential producers and financiers. But if you really counted, you you must have pitched it, you know, a lot more than that, because these, you know, meetings with actors are kind of pitches. So do you have any other tips for like preparing for those meetings, the actor meetings or the actor pitches or the other kind of participant pitches? We covered in episode one of how do you know which project to make into your first feature. And a lot of that, I think, is your personal story and your passion for the material. So that always gave me a starting point and an in. I could very easily say why I was the one to tell the story and open with some anecdotes about being a basketball player, but not being a great basketball player, <laughs> but being around really good basketball players. And so there's that, there's that personal connection to the material that's really going to help you in an industry where everyone else is more experienced than you. So you need to have a personal experience that can help convince people that you're the right one and that they should take a chance on you. And that kind of personal narrative is not just, of course, as you said, for, for pitching to producers and financiers, but to actors and, and everybody. So then back to your kind of supporting cast, you know, you're obviously going to spend sort of more time and energy in a certain way to get those like stakeholder tentpole, you know, actors, but everybody is important. So, so what was the process for, for finding the larger pool of actors? For this movie, it was somewhat unique because it's a basketball movie and I wanted the basketball to be authentic. I hadn't seen a lot of movies where I felt like the basketball was up to snuff. And so we really, also we had some very particular requirements for some of these other roles, which were, basketball players are tall and in some cases we have players who are foreign and have accents and the thing you don't want people to be doing is faking basketball and accents 
and you can't really fake height that well. So <laughs> we had a lot of really specific requirements. My priority was to cast real basketball players because on an indie, you're doing complicated basketball blocking for action. And just the way someone runs in basketball, you can tell whether it's right, what stance they're in, where they know what, where to go. And if you don't have experienced people at that actual sport, then you're going to be spending a whole lot of time on the choreography of a secondary character in the background. And you're not going to be able to spend as much time with your lead and getting all of that right. So we focused on a lot of the roles of just casting real basketball players and then having them audition and read a script and then work with them in the audition to see if they could take direction. Sometimes someone's really good on the first take, but that's because it's new and it's fresh to them. And can they do it over again? And, you know, that's one of the bigger challenges for non-actors. So I actually brought on a friend of mine who's a basketball player. He was on, on my team at the time, Daniel Poneman. He had been a scout in Chicago. He's now an NBA agent. But at the time, I knew he, he knew a lot of basketball players. And so I said, hey, just start reaching out. This is who we're looking for. And we sort of rounded out the team with basketball players who'd never acted before. Only Michael Rainey Jr., who plays Tehran, and Ashley Bryant, who plays Anton. Those are the only actors on the whole team. Everyone else, this is their first time. Wow. And we sort of rounded it out with these people who are very specific roles. But, you know, Stefan Frank, who plays Petrus, his life story is very similar to Petrus's. He had a very close understanding of what that character was going through. He's from Montenegro. He came to America on a basketball scholarship. That accent's real. His dunks are real. James Siakam, who plays Olembe, is from Cameroon. Played basketball in college in America. Is the brother of the NBA player Pascal Siakam on the Toronto Raptors. You know, like, these are, you know, is really very close to the role that he's playing. And and I felt that that was going to bring authenticity to the movie because we're working in an area that has been portrayed on movies before and people are very quick to say we've seen this story before as soon as you say it's a basketball movie it's like oh i've seen that before so you've got to get certain nuance and authenticity in there so that people who are in the basketball world themselves recognize that most people in basketball don't like basketball movies because the basketball itself is so bad and it's mm-hmm. and it's and it's so fake and you can so easily detect that when you watch a movie. So I knew that we had to get it right for the people in the world itself and that meant casting, you know, a lot of a lot of street casting and real person casting and and not um you know, not believing actors when they say, "Oh, I can learn that. I can do that." It's like, "No. You you have to actually be able to do it. You're not going to be able to train to do that." And they were all so great. I have to say, I loved the supporting cast. So if someone listening wanted to do this kind of street casting, where does one begin with that? That's a really difficult part of the process because casting directors, if they're taking on your first time feature, they have a lot of other projects, which are the ones that are actually really paying their bills, right? A lot of these casting directors are taking on your projects. They really like the script and it's something different than maybe network TV or whatever the things that they're that they're spending a lot of time casting on that actually pay their bills. But street casting and real person casting, they don't have time to do that because they're out there dealing with agencies and TV networks and, and A-list stars for these TV shows. So you need to find a casting associate, somebody who specializes in, it's, it's such a funny word, real people casting. Like, oh, well, what were we casting other than human beings <laughs> right um so so f- that's why i sort of reached out to it's a like basketball scout 
Yeah, exactly. And then, um, you know, we had worked with a couple other casting directors who were more sort of commercial based to try to help do some of the outreach because that stuff can be a grind. And, um, but, but the process is very cool because you get to see sort of a cross section of who's out there and you get all these self taped auditions, which are coming in through sometimes hilarious circumstances because the actor has to read with somebody on the other side of the camera and that could be their friend. It could be their mother or father and the performance off camera can get pretty interesting. (laughs) It's one of my favorite part of the processes is just watching because you do find some, some diamonds in the rough and, and it's just inspiring to see people interpreting the material. Like there's a line in the movie where the kid doesn't understand what a gazebo is. And I remember I'm sitting there watching auditions and these two kids are reading the scene. Uh, you know, there's the kid on camera and then his friend is, is taping him and reading the off-camera lines. And so the on-camera line is, you know, what are these things? He's trying to figure out what it is. And then the off-camera line is a gazebo. But the off-camera line, the kid is like, a gazebo? <laughs> and then the kid on camera goes, yeah, a gazebo. And I was like, see, this is proving. This is proving that right. you don't know what a gazebo Very is. Very like authentic it. script. <laughs> um, so I really, really enjoyed that that open call casting process. It sounds fun and like sort of tedious. Also, I suppose these days we have YouTube and those kind of things where if you have the sort of wherewithal, you could spend a lot of time looking at clips on YouTube and finding some quote unquote personalities that you may then want to pursue for reads. Yeah. I mean, Sean Baker famously cast one of his leads in the Florida Project off of uh, seeing her on Instagram. Oh, wow. Was she sitting in a gaze bow? Or? <laughs> <laughs> um, cool. So then once you've sort of assembled this this Motley crew, so to speak, how, how do you make offers? What's the next step? Yeah. I mean, an offer is, is I guess, includes financial details and, and a schedule and that kind of stuff. So you sort of get into the practicalities of when and where and how much and all those kind of things. Um I think as much as you can have your producers deal with that stuff, that's really great because as the director, you want to be protected. You want to be the person that people come to for the creative on the movie and for the performance and for the character, but you don't want to get involved in money. You don't really want to be that person. You know, Um, Some directors are producers, but I think even in those situations, they're producers in limited capacity where they're trying to be protected from, from some of these things. You don't want to be in the negotiations. I mean, you're probably spending your time rewriting the script and, and looking at other actors and doing all these things, the last thing you want to be is is part of that uh, nitty-gritty where the, the agents and the managers and the lawyers and those people are involved. And that makes sense because it's not really um, just that you don't feel like dealing with that. It's that you need to have a different kind of relationship with, with the actors. Exactly. You, I mean, in an ideal world, you don't know what anybody's getting paid. You don't, you know, they don't know what you're getting paid. It's not, you never want to be in a situation where you don't feel like you can ask somebody to do something because they're not making enough money. I mean, this is your, this is your dream. This is your baby. This is your life. And you can't feel timid about trying to push things, you know, and really try to get the best performance you can or to get the best resources you can. And so the more that you're sort of protected from those things, I think the more that you're, you're doing it out of love and passion and you want other people to be doing it for the same reasons and to not be coming to you and say well you know we don't have the the money or the resources like you you want to you want to keep it creative so a lot of the folks i have interviewed talk about also sort of casting your crew 
it's not that during this period you're just finding your actors. You're also finding the people who are going to work on your film. And it's an interesting approach to think about it as casting because actually you have to assemble a team that can work together, that you can work with in a similar way to how you would work with your actors. So what was your process for finding the crew for Amateur? I think as a first-time writer-director, ideally, you're the least experienced person on the set. Everybody else should have a wealth of experience that they can bring, that they can support you with. And in this case, it was a little bit different because I had a strong relationship with my DP from the short, Greg Wilson. That was his first short. That was my first short. And we had the opportunity to make the feature together. And people liked the way the short looked. We worked well together. And I think sometimes while you want everybody around you to be more experienced than you, there's also a certain line you may not want to cross where if somebody's done 20 features and you're the first timer, they might give you the, yeah, you don't know what you're doing, kid. You know, you you don't want to be in a situation like that. So Greg, the DP, was somebody I brought with me. And thank you to my producers and thank you to Netflix and everybody for believing in in our relationship and in his work that they would allow me to do that because a first-time writer-director and a first-time DP is not a normal pairing, I would say. In terms of the other departments, a lot of that was producers who've produced other movies before who work with people. And that's obviously the best way to know what someone brings to the table is to have worked with them before. So you're essentially trying to identify your heads of the different departments and that means that you're bringing on costume designers, production designer, assistant director, line producer. And these are all people that either came from recommendations from my producer or the thing about crew that people don't realize is they have agents too. And it's often like, oh, actors have agents. Yes, but there are below the line agencies and agents that represent, that specialize in production designers or costume designers. And so what happens is you might be a fan of a production designer or a DP or somebody's work that you saw in another movie and reach out to them. And if they're available, if they want to work at this budget level, if something about the material appeals to them, that's great. But if they're not, they might be repped by an agent who says, hey, well, I have four other production designers too. I have these other costume designers and I happen to know my clients that this person is a big sports person. They might be interested in it. So it's sort of, um, again, when it comes to a movie that has dates, sometimes availability is the best ability. And you are not going to, on your first feature with your budget level and with certain dates locked in, you can't really just approach anybody, right? You've got to find people who are interested in the material or just really respond strongly to the script. I mean, that script over and over again is going to be the thing that motivates people to come on board. For me, there was a lot of Skyping because people were in LA or I was in prep and going to the location or wherever it was. So you just Skype with people and and sort of, uh, you know, judge the character and see what they bring to the table and what their ideas are and whether they're in line with yours. Are there any resources you can recommend for people who who they or their producers might not be that well connected or if they live in like a, you know, a non-production town, how would they start to build out crew or find people to talk to? I mean, I've, I've started keeping lists just if I'm watching a movie now and I really respond to the, the cinematography or the music or the production design. I've just started keeping lists of, of people that I think did great work on a certain film. Maybe I didn't even like the movie, but I thought the production design was great. So I just start writing those names down. And if you can reach out to somebody, and a lot of 
below the line crew just have they have a personal website. You just Google them. You go there. They have a portfolio of work because you know maybe if, as a production designer, features are far in between. They're doing commercials all the time. There's a lot of there's Nike. There's all these other things that they're designing for, and often there's just a direct contact. And if you can reach out to somebody, and it you're not just spraying and praying, right? That they that you have something personal to say and an appreciation of something they did on another movie. I loved your work in Shazam. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, I went to Shaq's site and you know, <laughs> talked. To, actually, you know, Shaq is really good in blue chips, I have to say. Um, but yeah, if you can personalize your outreach, a lot of a lot of below the line crew are not, you know, accosted by the public or recognized for their work. And if you can personalize that and recognize something that they've done and approach them, I think you have a really nice shot uh, of of getting them on board. So I imagine these things are happening kind of concurrently. You're you're putting your cast together, you're putting your crew together, and then this other sort of like leg in the tripod at this stage is is location. I mean, you have to shoot this thing somewhere, and I think I think this probably is really uh, harder than some first time filmmakers might think. Like, oh, I'll just shoot it in X place, but there are actually so many considerations. Like, would you say that's <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And and part of this goes back to the previous episode when we were talking about financing, because in the film industry, one of the really, really prominent components of film finance is soft money, as it's called. Soft money is like, well, it's not it's not real money that someone has committed. It's money that you're receiving back either via tax incentive or, uh, you know, some sort of grant that a country might have and all sorts of other ways that you can sort of build a budget based on real equity and then promised money that's coming back and all sorts of things. So a lot of the calculation that goes into where you're filming, what location in terms of, not in terms of like which building, but what state you're in, is tax incentives. And many different states have many different tax incentives with all sorts of ins and outs and the percentages are different. The amount of in-state crew you need to hire are different. What is considered rebatable is different. But essentially, if you think about your movie, whatever the whatever the your, the budget is, you're always going to be stretching a dollar and scrapping for money, and you're always going to be forced to say, "Do you want this or that?" So, it, a tax incentive state is pretty much a no-brainer to film in because some states have up to a 35% tax credit. And let's say hypothetically your budget is, we'll take a round number, a million dollars. If you're going to get $350,000 back from that state, that's equivalent to, to making a movie with that much more money. And so that's why many states are always examining their program and adding to it or competing with each other. And you'll see a lot that film crews move around to wherever the current rebates are the best. And, you know, Atlanta, Georgia's going crazy. You know, people are filming everything there because the incentive is so huge and the crew base is large. Um, So that's one of the main considerations along with the crew base. The crew base is not just a question of who has the best crew. Again, availability is the best ability. And if you're going to a place that's really, really busy, how deep is the crew base? If... You're not, you're not going to be the biggest show in town. So just to clarify, what you mean is like 
what crew is in town versus who you'd have to travel to some location to shoot there. Yeah, exactly. So for our for our film, we shot in Denver, Colorado, which had a tax credit and then lost it. And now I just heard it's back. So again, these things are changing all the time. Um, Colorado is not a state where a lot of movies have been made. And part of why we felt that that was a strength for us was that we needed a lot of extras. And if you film a movie in New York or Los Angeles, no one's impressed by a movie being filmed. It's just annoying their lives because they have to move the car. There's stuff on the sidewalk, whatever it is. But if you go to a, a state where they don't make movies and you say, hey, we need extras on Saturday for this basketball scene. Come see how this movie is made. Here are the people that are in it. It's a Netflix movie that hopefully you can incentivize people to come out and say, hey, you know, I'm going to go out there. They're going to feed me. I'm going to I'm going to cheer. I'm going to be in a movie. And that's you know, that's a tremendous incentive in a place where movies aren't common. So that was another reason we went there. Did it work, by the way? Did people show up as extras? <laughs> oh, for another episode, maybe. Yeah, yeah, we'll get to that in production. I would say it was hit or miss, you know, and we'll talk about that too in scheduling. But one of the things that you need to look out for in picking a state is just because you go to, so the Entertainment Partners website, I think is one of the main resources on looking at different state tax credits. And again, this is something that your producers should be more on top of than, than you optimally. But it's not just a matter of what is the percentage. There's always ins and outs. And then, again, you're not going to be the biggest show in town. You're going to show up, and a lot of the best people are probably working on movies or, or TV shows, because there's so much TV now, where they're making more money. They're getting paid better. So for your little scrappy film, if there's 25 other things filming in town at once, then you know you, you might be at the bottom of the barrel in terms of who you're competing against and where and you're not you're not anybody's first choice so those are some considerations when it comes to picking kind of the the global location i will mention to listeners that if you're interested in a specific place there are like overall sites like entertainment partners but also every uh state in the u.s and a lot of cities too have um film commissioners whose whole job is to help answer these questions and you can just google your local film commissioner and, and reach out and they're great resources too because when it comes to scouting and maybe this is a good segue <laughs> when it comes to scouting for locations and we're not talking about picking which state but we're talking about which block and which building and which part of town and all these things the film commissioners are the ones that have been in touch with a lot of locations they've liaisoned with different locations. They know who's helpful, who's open to filming there, who's not. In some cases, what prices are, you know, what good places in town are to be looking for locations. And, you know, they're, they're locals. So if you're saying, I need a location that feels like this or looks like this, it's pretty hard from being out of town. You know, hopefully you're bringing on a location manager and they know those things. But sometimes your first touch points there are the state film commissioners. Well, that is a great segue, Ryan. Um, so what does location scouting entail? What, what, what can people expect? How much time should they budget for it? Yeah, so now we're transitioning, right? There's the pre-prep prep, which is offers to actors. You're probably still rewriting the script, talking about which state to film in. The minute things really get going is when you've locked your dates. And once you have those dates, then you're backdating that in terms of how much prep can we do. And when I say prep, what I mean is 
when you fly or drive to wherever you're shooting and you hit the ground and now you have X number of days before principal photography begins. Now, if it's your hometown, I guess you don't have that issue. You're, you're already there. But as soon as you lock dates, now you've got a very specific timeline in which you need all of the different elements to be in place. And location scouting is kind of the first thing because you can't make a movie if you don't have locations. The actors and the camera and all that sort of stuff, you know, that's got to go somewhere. Right. And this movie was challenging because it actually does have a lot of locations. And they're sizable locations. They're gymnasiums. There's extras. There's locker rooms. There's entire schools that we need to be able to film at and take over. So what I found was I had to start getting really complicated with, I created this really large spreadsheet with all of the principal locations in the movie, but we didn't have, you know, we're doing sort of what looks like a larger sports movie on a smaller budget. So we needed locations that could double as more than one location. Because the big consideration with scheduling is a company move, meaning when you film in a location and you have to pack up the whole crew and the equipment and everything and then drive to somewhere else and then unpack it and set it all up again, is a huge time suck. So you want to try to limit those? We tried to do none on the entire movie. Wow. Not once did we want to do a company move. I mean, not that we filmed the entire movie in one location. What that means is that you show up on a day and you're there all day, and then the next day you're somewhere else, as opposed to trying to move once or twice or three times in the day. So I had to create this crazy spreadsheet as we were scouting all of the schools in Denver, public schools, private schools, looking at their gyms, looking at their exterior, looking at their locker rooms, looking at their hallways, their classrooms. And the whole idea of the movie is this kid's at an older public school, and he goes away to a posher private school. So the schools need to visually look very different from each other so that it just plays. You don't need to explain that, but it needs to play on screen. You need to see that. Right. And what we ended up doing, I would just take photos and I would take videos. And I actually found videos really helpful because you can be sort of talking to your cell phone and your camera as you're panning around. And therefore, you see where things are in relationship to each other. And um, So I really like doing that. But what I did is try to find a school that could play as two or three schools. Oh, it's got a really nice area that looks like a private school, but then there's this worse area that could be a public school and so on and so forth. And we started basically trying to play schedule slash location Tetris for how could we fit it all in and how could we shoot with these cast members in this location and how could we shoot one school for all these locations. So there's one school in Denver, I think it was Denver South, that you see in the movie that plays as private school exterior, public school interior, away gym, uh, gymnasium, private uh, public school gymnasium, other away school locker room, and maybe even more. I mean, this one wow. place, you know, we, we, we would paint a locker room with a purple stripe, and now it's the purple gym. Then we would go over and we would paint of the gym stripe green so now it's the public you know it's a different gym and so there was a lot of that kind of uh challenge in prep to figure out how can we 
how can we do what seems like the impossible, which is to try to make this movie that seems like it's big, but is actually not uh, with all the, the locations that, that I've written into the script. I'm curious, when you looked at that massive spreadsheet, was there anything that you then just immediately cut? You said, you know what, we don't actually need this scene. Or did you try first to get everything? That's what's really hard about prep is not only are you there scouting locations, but when you get to the location that you're filming, and I don't mean this particular school, I mean the town that you're going to be filming in, a lot of times your your heads of department might be from out of state bringing them in if you're filming, you know, in this case in Colorado, if you're not filming in New York or L.A., someplace where there's a, there's a lot of production going. But you also need to hire a lot of local crew for the people that the heads of the department are going to be, you know, working with. And so that means also that a lot of your time in prep is spent interviewing mm-hmm. crew members while you're trying to look at locations. And in my case, while well, I'm also rewriting the script feverishly. So the there were a lot of locations that just wouldn't work because it would be the perfect location for this one scene. But do we have enough scenes for the rest of that day that we can be there all day? And part of the challenge of this movie is because it stars a kid is we only have a limited number of shooting hours in the day. He's 15. There are child labor laws. You can't film with your actors for 13 hours. So we are scheduling for an eight and a half hour day. And also kids can't work past 1230 at night. This movie, high school basketball takes place at night. It's a lot of night scenes. It's, it was summer in Denver. It didn't get dark until 830. So then you're starting to do a schedule that splits, meaning the first half of the day you're filming day scenes, second half of the day you're filming night scenes. It's a whole lot of schedule aerobics to figure that out because you're not trying to do company moves. You have short days. This kid is in every single scene of the movie. And then you've got to get your daytime scenes done because it gets dark and now you've got to do the nighttime scenes. So you can't fall behind schedule and swap something from the second half of the day to the first half of the day. So our first AD, Dan Taggetts, I don't know how many versions of the schedule he had to do. I mean, this was crazy. And I was rewriting the script, so he was getting new new pages all the time. So prep is something where if you have enough time in prep, it can really, really help the actual production. But we didn't have all of our locations locked by the time we started shooting. And we were thrown a massive schedule curveball where we thought we were going to be, we were in prep, still scouting locations. We thought we were going to be shooting in a week, eight days. You know, principal photography is a line in the sand. You're, you're all trying to get everything done before that. It's crazy. And as a director in prep, you're just people saying, okay, what, what are the cha- chairs in the classroom like? What's on the walls? You're trying to get everything ready so that when you show up, you know, and you start burning through money during production like crazy, that you're not answering these questions and all the right props are there and everything is designed and looking the way it, 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 it's supposed to. We had a schedule curveball thrown our way where we thought we weren't going to start shooting for over a week and then we had to start shooting the day after tomorrow. What? In a different location. And we had to completely flip our schedule. So that that's what was crazy about it was I think in I think really prioritizing the amount of time you have in prep can really help. And sometimes this is not a choice you make as a filmmaker because if you get an actor attached in the movie, they have schedules. 
And you know the, the industry is so cash-driven. If you want this actor, these are the dates. You're a first-time filmmaker. You don't have money. They're making their money on something else. They're doing this because they're really interested in it. And your project, you know, lives or dies with this cast. So then, oh, they've got a hard out because they got to go do this other thing. Therefore, you backdate your dates. Therefore, you need to start shooting soon. Therefore, your prep may be compressed. So that's something that um, if you can protect that and get to prep earlier. Even if it's just with your closest collaborators, you don't want your principal photography start date to be a surprise. Oh, my God. I'm like reeling from this story. And we haven't even gotten into sort of all the other things that happened during this prep period, which we now learned uh, this on the ground prep period, which we now learned from you uh, was kind of condensed. I do have one other question just about location scouting before we get into some of that other stuff, because I feel like one of the most instructive things you have to offer up and coming filmmakers is like the things that didn't go well. And of course, one of them is working around this crazy time constraints. But one is like, I imagine you might have had your heart set on some locations and then were just told no. So did that happen? And if so, how did you get around that? Were you able to convince them or did you have to pivot? Yeah, we had to pivot. We had to pivot. And we we had one location where I think somebody somebody had agreed, thought it was perfect. And then I, I think they literally went and Googled, what does a Hollywood movie pay for a location? Oh, no. And then they came back to us with some insane quote. And we were just so far apart. It was like, you're Googling what a mansion in Bel Air charges. You know, <laughs> this is not that movie. And ultimately, we couldn't agree. And so th- those kind of things happen all the time. And hopefully, they happen ahead of time. <laughs> so in that case, do you find locations and backup locations? Or do you wait until you get a no to find the backup location? You know, I think when you're scouting several, that's kind of like you, you just have to kind of rank them you know this is my top choice and then this is my second choice and so on and so forth and you hope that as the as the overall experience of making the movie is uh, entirely you know you hope that for situations like this and there are many where you don't have your druthers can you still get it to the finish line can you still represent things authentically enough can it still be your vision even though it wasn't your first or second choice and you know still reach an audience and move an audience and make sense and be believable. Right. So then in this crazy period, when you're about to shoot, what else is happening? What else do you need to, like, boxes do you need to check off? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, prep is so much more than locations. Um, For this, it being a location shoot, right, it's not in a studio, it's not in our hometown, we're all there to make the movie. Um, You know, you open a production office, which is usually just a whatever cheap, office space is available close to where you the center of where you're going to be filming you're moving crew into either hotel or apartments or again whatever's cheap and close to where you're going to be filming you're hiring people um you are doing budgeting aerobics and i was involved in some of those conversations because on an indie it's not you can have this and you can have that it's like what's more important to you this or that do you want to cut these locations in order to have more time at this one and how much time do we need to film this basketball? And then therefore, how much time does that mean? How much less time do you have to film these other scenes? And then you're, you know, you're, you're scouting the locations, which is really helpful for envisioning the shots and 
you're doing all sorts of wardrobe selections and fittings, and you're you're locking in your equipment as well, because um, you know this movie was the beneficiary of so many programs and grants, and uh, I'll take this opportunity to thank some of the people that helped us on this movie with equipment. And we'll talk about this more during production. But of course, being at no film school, I'm saying, what can I do? Who can I call to bring something in on this movie? But one thing that we did was that's open to anybody is we got what's called the Panavision New Filmmakers Grant. And that is Panavision has a program for up and coming filmmakers. And like a lot of rental houses, they want to work with filmmakers that they believe in that are going to go on to have big careers. They want to work with you at the beginning because you're going to have equipment needs. To bring them business. Exactly. So some rental houses, Panavision included, have these grants where they say, you can have our equipment for free. If your movie goes on to be some huge box office success, then I think there's some sort of clause that you need to, you need to pay what, you, you know, what rack rates would have, would have been. You can't have anything you want, but you can have what's available, what someone else isn't using, and it's Panavision. So this is great equipment. So we had this grant from them, but we were also uniquely in a position where, as a Netflix original, we also needed to be a 4K shoot and delivery for Ultra HD all the way to the end user, which is amazing as an indie. But it also means that you have a very specific selection of equipment that you can work with to, to shoot and to finish in 4K. So we are also, as we're doing all these other things, making a decision about what are we shooting on. And um, we ended up shooting on a Sony F55. And I, at the time, we shot this a while ago, the R7 recorder was not out there yet. But I knew that we wanted to shoot high speed and to have the ability to have slow motion for these basketball sequences. So I called Sony and said, hey, that R7 that's in beta, can we be the first movie to shoot on it? So we'll get into a lot more of the equipment. Um, but, but yeah, thank you to Panavision and G-Tech for hard drives and Sony for cameras and you know any, uh, anything you can do to, to bring on something in kind, to convince somebody to help you out, that's going to help your budget. And one of the things that's really motivating on that front is when someone says, you can't have this. So then you say, well, if I could get this other thing for free, then could I have that? And so that's where I started making a lot of calls during prep was to say, let's try to get this perceived budget level up. So it's all like kind of putting a puzzle together. Yes. I yes. like that you teased the uh, the production episode, by the way, folks, that'll be coming later this month. <laughs> um, so, okay, so you've got all this stuff happening at the same time out of like a little production office in your, your new hometown for a few weeks or a few months. Wow. And then at what point do the actors join you and how much kind of rehearsal do you do with them? It, you know, it's, I think it's probably different for every movie. I think um, on your first, again, you're probably not having your druthers. They have to get there before principal photography to go through wardrobe fittings and to get situated and, and all of those things. In my case, I also wanted actors to get there if they were going to be playing basketball to get used to the fact that Denver is a mile high. Oh, right. So that they would not be sucking wind on the first take of basketball shot one and then, you know, and to have that be slowing us down. Um, but yeah, so so on an indie, 
you don't have a, a, a lot of shoot days. You don't have a lot of time and you can't just say, I want to rehearse, you know, for, I want to rehearse for weeks. I mean, that's, you probably don't have the availability for that. In our case, um, I wanted to do some reading up front and I wanted to go through the script with Michael and talk through, talk it through because with most movies, you're shooting the, the entire film out of order because you're shooting block locations. And then in this movie, especially because you start in one place, you go away and then you come back. That means because you're going, you're coming back to the same location you started at, that you're filming the beginning and the end of the movie on the same day, which is very difficult because you, you have to assume this entire emotional journey that's happened in between. And sometimes you're shooting the end before you're shooting the beginning and so on and so forth. So I definitely wanted to go through the script with him and just talk about some references about how he was feeling at every different moment along the journey so that when we shot it all out of order, it would all make sense. And did you do that all in person or was there some happening like over Skype or over the phone ahead of time? We did that in person. Uh, Michael and his mother, Shauna, came to Denver and we started doing that. I also did a little bit of a rehearsal because I wanted the family to get familiar with each other. So I, I had the mom and the dad, Sharon and Brian, do, do some scenes with Michael. And I think as a director, what's really helpful, even if you don't like to rehearse or as a first time director, even if you don't have the option to rehearse, what can be really helpful is just to do a little bit of a reading where you are going to see what the actors are bringing to the table so that day one, when you turn the camera on, you're not surprised and you can see maybe what someone's interpretation is and maybe what yours is, and you can kind of pre-direct that in your head to say, okay, I think this person's going to come from this angle. Let me think about some things that I can say to, to move them over here ahead of time where you're not just sitting there on set after take one going, uh, <laughs> you know. So that, that's really helpful to be, to be able to do a little bit of read there. Um, and then, as I said before, what happened is we had a scheduled curveball. So honestly... I went through the first half of the script with Michael and we talked through every scene and we thought our next day was going to be the second half of the script. But then the next day had to be a company day off because we needed to start shooting the day after. And so that was a curveball as well. That is so intense. Okay, so you've referred to this schedule and how it got cut short. I'm wondering, like, how is that schedule managed? Who who makes the schedule? Who manages the schedule? And how much time did you guys actually have for this particular film? We had five weeks. And I fought tooth and nail for five weeks because it's not just a matter of the days. It's how many hours do you have? And there are some films that have been filmed in 18 days, but they were 18-hour days. For us, we've got eight and a half hours with our lead. So a 25-day shoot is actually less time than that 18-day shoot. And again, it's sports, it's basketball, it's complicated blocking, there's extras, there's a lot of things going on here, and nighttime scenes. And nighttime scenes mean you need the light. One of the great tricks of so many indies throughout the years has been, this is a daytime scene, and we're going to put our characters near a nice window and angle the daylight and shoot it at the right time of day, and then we don't need the light, and also our cast is predominantly Caucasian, this is a predominantly minority film, predominantly at night. You need to light this movie. But we also don't have that many hours. So I fought really, really, really hard to keep it at 25 days and to not have that be one of the things that was whittled down when you're trying to cut scenes or cut locations or cut budget or cut equipment or cut cast. You know, all of those, those pressures are there. So we had five weeks. 
And in terms of who does the schedule, that's the assistant director. That's one of their main jobs. And it's there's a lot of really interesting considerations with the schedule. It's not just a matter of, you know, some, some directors like Andrea Arnold have been able to shoot their film in order. That's amazing. I can't imagine doing that. You just don't have... You might it might take you three times as long to do that, and and if you can fight for that and you can get that budget, that's amazing. And again, because this film is something where he starts at one place, goes away, and comes back, then of course you're going to film that location at the same time. What that means is that not only do you have the efficiency consideration, but you also have the performance consideration. And there are some versions of the schedule that are going to be better for performances because you're able to sort of build up in the schedule to this emotional scene and film that later. And then there are some scenes where you just have to jump right to it. And this is a scene late in the movie that's really emotional and everybody's trying to guess at what they, they would have gone through to get to this point. I mean, uh, famously, the, the uh, lion with Dev Patel, uh, I think the first scene in that movie they shot, I was listening, was the emotional scene where he comes back and meets his mother. And that was the first day of shooting. Wow. I can't imagine that, you know, so you... I've also heard about plenty of, like, love stories where the actors might not even really know each other in real life, but their biggest romantic love scene is shot on the first day. Yeah, exactly. It's really tricky. Exactly. I mean, that's one of the fascinating things for some of these stories is not only uh, something like Fish Tank or American Honey being shot entirely in order, but something that, like, Derek San France did with Blue Valentine where he would have Ryan Gosling and Michelle Williams and, like, have them spend time with each other living in a house like a real relationship and just the things that you can go beyond this sort of default shooting schedule in order in order to to reach a new level but on your on your first feature you know it's generally hard to do that and it's just really working closely with the ad to try to say okay this is great and this is really efficient but i can't imagine shooting that scene at that part of the schedule is there a way for us to to rejigger this over there so that we're shooting it and this is going to be better for performance and so on and so forth um but yeah dan he had to do so many versions and then um you know ultimately we we got it made whew (laughs) one other just sort of technical question about like who is there and who's involved and who you need what's a tech scout right so a tech scout First of all, ideally, you have all of your locations, right? You're wrapping up prep. You're about to go into principal photography. You know every scene, what day it's going to be shot on, and where. That was not the case for us because we were shooting sooner than we thought. And a tech scout is basically you show up with your crew to the location, and you're essentially saying, on the day, these are where the shots are going to be. Therefore, this is where not to put this truck. This is where not to have the wardrobe trailer. This is, you know, this is where we're going to be seeing in this scene. This is the area we're going to be working in. Therefore, the generator can go over there. And therefore, wardrobe should set up over there. And extras can be held over here. And it's all the sort of logistics of how that day is going to go. Because you're trying to cut down on the number of questions and curveballs and things that can go wrong when you get there. Um, the key that I found for this is <laughs> everyone's going to think they're going to remember everything you're saying as a director. But some of these tech scout days, you, you, know, you might do the entire film tech scout in two or three days. You just go hit every location, run through everything. 
four weeks later, mm. when you come back to this location, a lot of people aren't going to remember what you said. So you need to make sure that it's being written down and it's being communicated. And that way, when you come back, it's not, you know, wait a second, the generator is right where we said it wasn't supposed to go. And that's in the shot. So who so does that? So is that like your production manager? Who's the person responsible for making sure that the information that you conveyed at the tech scout is then refreshed and reiterated like the day you're actually shooting there? I mean, your, your department heads should be in charge of their own departments. But mm. but really, in terms of the communication from the director to the crew, that goes through the assistant director. I mean, that's once they finish the schedule, uh, which hopefully is fewer versions than we had to go through, then they're sort of in charge of taking that information and, and bringing it to the crew and making sure that they're aware of it. Cool. It, it brings to mind that we definitely should do a No Film School podcast episode with an AD or some ADs because it's such a critical role and I think sort of un, undersung. I, I think in terms of, you know, if you were to, to resize the font on a film credit, scroll, you know, in terms of like who has a, an important role and then people who are in the credits, you're like, I don't ever even met that person. You know, <laughs> what, did they, what did they do? Um yeah, the assistant director is incredibly important. You've brought us on this journey. Your movie's financed. Your script is written. Your actors are cast. Your locations are found. You're about to shoot. And next time we'll get into production. But, like, what are you feeling then? What are you feeling at that point where you're like, this is really about to happen? It's a crazy feeling. And I remember the, the night before we were shooting, just walking around this location, which was not the location we were originally going to start shooting at. So it was kind of a scramble. And, and uh, you know, the production design and the art department are, are really trying to, to, to catch up, even though we're about to start there. Um, and just looking at the, the fact that there is a trailer, the fact that there is somebody working on this movie who had a job, that there's a, a truck full of equipment because of something I had written down on a piece of paper seven years ago it's it was an amazing feeling and a feeling certainly that i want to go through many many times more although except for the seven year part <laughs> and it's just it was so inspiring that i'd felt like you know it's like it's not like you won because you're about to go through this incredibly difficult process but i was so grateful to be there that i knew that throughout the shoot that i didn't ever want to forget that feeling of being grateful and knowing that it very well could not be at this point. Well, what a great place to uh, leave us off for this time. And as mentioned, um, folks can look out next week for the our first episode about production, um, the production of Amateur. And that's going to be when things really get exciting. Yeah. I, I'm not even sure how we're going to do that. Like, is that going to be one episode? Uh, we'll see. Stay tuned. I mean, there's so much to talk about. All right. If you have a question about your own feature or anything you've heard here, you can email us at firstfeature at nofilmschool.com. You can find me on Twitter at Ryan B. Koo. I'm at Liz Film. And this and all other episodes of the first feature are at nofilmschool.com slash firstfeature. And you can find all of our podcasts by looking for the No Film School podcast on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you find your podcasts. And that'll be... A weekly news show called Indie Film Weekly that fills you in on everything you might have missed when you were busy making films. Every Monday we've got brand new interviews and what else, Ryan? I think that's it. We might have just set a record for longest no film school podcast. Woohoo! Lucky you. <laughs> if you're still listening, thanks for sticking with us. <laughs> See you next week. See you in the gaze bow. <laughs> <laughs>